Good morning. How are you doing? Praise the one, the risen Son of God. Amen? Amen. Amen. What a song. What a song. Uh, as we begin to share the word this morning, uh, so good to have you here today. If you could take out your Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 1, if you need it message outlines right down near the center doors right at their ministry counter please take that i'd appreciate that i don't know about you but i've wondered uh just many many times over the years i think of god i have a very high high view of god that god has high and lifted up but the scriptures talk about in psalm 113 and i've, I've mentioned this to you often that it talks about the two parts of god or the two concepts of god where he's high and lifted up he's so high he's high high above the heavens he's holy 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 he is awesome, right? He's in a class all by himself. The Bible says that he's transcendent. That's what that means. He's transcendent. But also in that same passage in Psalm 113, it talks about that, that he stoops down to entertain uh, uh, the thoughts of man in his heart. That God has to stoop down to us to do that. And it's called that he's imminent. And then it goes on and describes God being imminent in two ways. One, it talks about the poor man. And it's mentioned about the poor man who probably nobody knows his name probably has his, dump, uh, his home by a dumpster in the alley, that God picks up that poor man and seats him with princes. And then it also talks about another way, about a woman who couldn't have a baby, and she prays and asks her God to give her a baby, and God gives her a baby. And so we have these two concepts of God from the same passage of Scripture, Psalm 113, that he's transcendent, that he's otherly, that he's in a class all by himself, that he's set apart, but he's also that he's imminent, that he understands, and he knows the hair on top of our heads, right? The Bible says that's how he knows us. So too often we determine our view by one or the other. We say God is transcendent. He's set apart. He's far away. He's, he's awesome. Or we say, no, God is imminent. He's right here. And we look at one. In the reality, he's both. He's both to us. He is transcendent. He's imminent. He's there, but he's also here with us. And yet there have been many times that I've asked myself the question, a God is so huge. I mean, he's so huge. He's transcendent that he spoke a world into existence with the innumerable galaxies, the sun, the moon, and all the stars. And we look at that. And he holds everything together by the power of his word. And we look how great and huge he is. And I start to think to myself, but does he know what's going on in my heart and my life? You ever think that? Does he know this God that is so, so huge? Does he know what's going on in my heart and my life? Does he know that I failed algebra? Does he know that I have a kidney stone? Does he know that I have cancer? Does he know I'm having trouble in my marriage? Does he know what's going on with my, with my family, with my children? Does he know that I just lost my job? Does he know I want to have a baby and I, and I can't? Does God know these things? And the biggest thing, does he care? Is he concerned with the things that are going on in our life? And we want to begin a series that's going to answer all those questions. Believe it or not, it's going to answer all those questions when we get through the series. But a few weeks ago, my mother, who lives in Ohio, who's 86 years old, she fell and, uh, and broke her lower back. I don't know if you knew that. And, and I was praying to God. I said, God, would you just pray? I just pray that you would heal her, that you would just heal her and make her better. But in those moments, I understand the sovereignty of God and I understand and trust God's sovereignty. But it takes a little while for the emotion to catch up, right? And, and, the, and one of the things is, God, why would you allow this to happen to her? She's 86 years old. To fall down and, and to heal, it takes much harder. And, and I'm so thankful my mom is doing better. She's still in rehab. She's doing so much better. But my mom's always, I'm always impressed with my mom. My mom is always so positive. 
She's never negative. I've never ever heard negative. She's always positive. And she just amazes me. A few years ago, she broke her hip, and they said she would be in bed for two months, and in two weeks, she was walking around. So same as here. She's standing up, and she wants to walk, but they said she has to let the, the back heal. But she's always amazed me. And God is so good in answering prayer, prayers and, and healing her. But if God didn't choose to answer prayers and heal her, God is still so good, right? Amen? He's still so good. Let me ask you, does God care about those things that are going on in our lives? And I wonder right now about, some of you might be going through some really difficult trials. Some of them might be life and death. Some of them might be humiliating trials you're going through. Or some of them might be so overwhelming and devastating. The question is, does God care? Does he really care? We begin a series today in 1 Samuel, as I said, and it's called A Nation in Trouble. And I believe it's going to be a, a seven-part series. I'm not sure. I'm just into the fourth message. I think it's going to be six, seven, or eight, somewhere around there. I'm not finished. But it focuses on, on Samuel the man. That's what it's going to focus on. And we find out how the grace of God, it, it, God used in Samuel's life, was evident in so many powerful ways is what we find out. And grace is God giving you and I what we don't deserve, right? And the God of grace in Samuel's, li Samuel's life is still this God of grace today. And he gives his blessings. And we have the open hand of God in our lives, not because we deserve it, not because we've earned it, none of us have earned it, but because he loves us. That's why we have the grace of God in life, because he loves us. And as we look at the book of 1 Samuel, you need to understand the context of the history of, of what is going on at the time. The children of, of, of Israel were in a place in their history, in their chronology, where they did not have a king at this time. So they were going through these, running through these cycles, these cycles that they would have in the book of Judges. God would call a leader, usually a judge. He would reveal or declare they would be obedient, then they would be disobedient, and then God would judge them, and he would call another leader, a judge. And then they would, God would reveal, he would declare, they would be obedient, then they would be disobedient, rebellion would happen, God would judge them, and then he would call another judge. Every time you see a new judge and judges, that cycle has happened over and over and over in the book of Judges. And the last verse of the book of Judges really sums up the moral climate of the nation of Israel at the time. In Judges chapter 21, verse 25, and I like the English Standard Version, what it says there. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so morally and spiritually, the country was in great trouble, and God was going to have to do something, right? Otherwise, there's no hope for it. God was going to have to do something. The way he did it, hopefully will shock you, will shock you in a, in a good way, because he doesn't raise up a leader and introduce him to us in chapter 3, but he gives us chapter 1, which starts out with a story, not a story of national deliverance, but a story of a woman who wanted to have a baby, and she couldn't. And so if you have your Bibles, please turn to 1 Samuel chapter 1. I appreciate that. The big idea that I want to share with you today that uh, uh, you're going to hear over and over, that God shapes our trials for his good purposes. God shapes our trials for his good purposes. We understand that if you have your outline, there's three proper responses to that, that God shapes our trials for his good purposes. When the trials come, and they will, probably everyone in this room, at least half of you in this room, are going through a trial that's got your attention, right? And it doesn't matter the age. It doesn't matter how old you are. And if you're not in a trial, you're going to be in one. Not to try to be negative, but ever else, that's a fact of life. We all go through trials, don't we? We all go through trials. It doesn't matter our age. We go through these trials. And the first response as we're going through these trials is when trials come, trust God's sovereignty. Trust God's sovereignty. Let me share the story. The story begins with a man by the name of Elkanah, 
He's from the tribe of Ephraim. He's a Jew. He's living in the land of Israel. This is about probably about 1,200 years before Jesus Christ would come to the earth. He has a wife. His wife's name is Hannah. Uh, the difficulty is that he has another wife, and her name is Peninnah. Anybody see a problem with this story already? He has two wives. The Bible says Peninnah could have had children. She had children with her husband, but Hannah could not have children, okay? And so oftentimes we find in the surrounding uh, cultures and nations when a man had a wife and, and he couldn't have children in order to carry on his legacy, his name, and his property. He had to have a son. So he'd take on a second wife is what he would do. And yet the Bible is very clear. Uh, long before a nation was founded by God in Genesis chapter 12, we have Genesis chapter 2 where God gave us the paradigm for marriage. He gave us the structure for marriage. And the paradigm is so very, very clear. He says this, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. So he tells us so much what we need to know about the structure of marriage. He says the it's a husband who is a man, a wife who is a woman. It's a man and a woman. As they come together, leaving father and mother, they come together, being bounded by God, becoming one flesh for a lifetime. That's the model. No matter what the culture is saying, that's the model. That's the paradigm of marriage that God has. However, throughout history, what has happened, the surrounding cultures has other suggestions of how it should be. And the children of Israel oftentimes would grab hold of those because everyone else was doing it, right? Everyone else in the culture was doing it, so we might as well do it too. That still happens today, doesn't it? We still do that today. Many people do that. The paradigm hasn't changed, though, for marriage. hasn't changed at all. And there's nowhere in the Bible we find that. Matter of fact, Jesus... He actually quotes Genesis chapter 2. So God has not changed his paradigm for marriage. So it's incumbent for us to live by this. However, there are some, and maybe some today, that say uh, th this can work. There's other ways that it can work. And they would say, this might work better. They might even look today and say, you know, that thing with two wives. You know, I saw a guy in television. He had multiple wives, and it seemed like it was working for him, you know. And I don't know if it was. But here's the thing. Even if it pragmatically works, and people will say this works or that works, if God is against it, then it is wrong. No matter how much we think it might work another way, right? If we are followers of Jesus Christ, we have to run our lives, and we have to not based on pragmatism, what we might think work. We have to base it on the truth of God's word. That's what we have to do. Matter of fact, the Bible says in Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way that seems right to man, but at the end it leads to death. Many people say this seems like it's going to work this way, but at the end, it leads to destruction, what God says. And so even if our culture is saying to you, why don't you just live together? You know you can save so much money. And pragmatically, you might say to yourself, yeah, we could just live together. That way we don't have to pay two rents and all that kind of stuff. And we don't have to spend so much money. Now let me ask you, how much money do you have to say, save to justify disobedience? What's the cost? $500, $1,000? How much does that have to be? Maybe you say so many people are getting divorced, so we should try this thing out. We should try to live together before we do that. But God hasn't changed his paradigm for marriage, not one bit at all. It's still the same as Genesis chapter 2. And God is the one who designed marriage. So we have to do what is right according to God's word. No matter if we think pragmatically it might work better this way, God says it works best that way. We have to follow God. Amen? we got to follow his way. So Elkanah has two wives. Not that it's right, but he has two wives. And every year annually, they go up to Shiloh to offer their annual sacrifices to worship God and sacrifice because the temple had not been made in Jerusalem yet. So they worship Shiloh at the tabernacle, the temple, or, or at the tent. They call it the temple in the NIV, representing the presence of God was there. So they're gathered there together. 
This particular annual festival, scholars believe it was the Feast of Tabernacles, and they go and they would sacrifice the animals there, they would worship, they would be there, and they would have the feast, and then they would go home, okay? So they would go and sacrifice, and they would give their voluntary sacrifices. According to the voluntary sacrifices, the worshiper could take some of the bull they sacrificed for their own consumption. So Elkanah, the Bible says, he gave some to his wife Peninnah and her children, but he gave a double portion to his wife Hannah. And the reason the Bible gives us is because he loved her. In verse 5, it actually says this. He loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. The word in there grabs our attention, doesn't it? Because we look at that and say, because her infertility seemed to be part of the plan of God, that we see this. And you have to be asking the question, why would God do that, right? Why would God do that for a lady who wants to have a baby so badly for God to have closed her womb? Why would he do that? We get the answer from the passage from between verses 9 and 18, and we're going to get to that. But we need to remember, God will take our trials and shape him according to his good purposes, right? Remember that. So we have to trust him. We have to trust what God is doing. And what was happening between these two women, Peninnah and Hannah, the Bible says Peninnah, the Bible refers to her as Hannah's rival. Uh, she taunted her. She provoked Hannah. And so Hannah was distraught, she was discouraged, and she wept bitterly. This happened every year as they went up to Shiloh. Uh, can you imagine Hannah? She must have dreaded going up to Shiloh in that family event to offer the sacrifice. Because as she would travel up there, she would probably get beat up all by, by Peninnah. And maybe Peninnah would say, hey, we're probably going to have more children. Oh, that's right, you can't have any children, right? Kind of rubbing it in. Or maybe Elkanah says, you know, uh, Elkanah loves me more because I gave him children. And I'm going to carry on the name of Elkanah, mine and my children, because you can't have any. So Hannah is discouraged. She's distraught. One of the times they would go up to Shiloh where it was going to be different, that's where we want to pick up the story. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 9. So if you look at your Bibles there. Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. Eli is the high priest. He's the spiritual leader of Israel, so you know who that is. We'll, you'll hear much more about him uh, this week and next week in a couple of next messages. Verse 10, in the bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. And she made a vow, saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery, remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. You need to understand in the Old Testament, nobody has to offer a vow. No one had to make a vow. It was always voluntary. But if you made a vow, according to the book of Ecclesiastes and, and Proverbs, you had to keep it. Matter of fact, the book of Proverbs says this, to make a rash vow and not keep it is a snare that captures your life and you will lose all credibility in the process. So she makes this vow. Have you ever done that in your life? Maybe when you were younger, you were sick or something, and you kind of made a vow, God, you get me through this. If you heal me, then I'll do this or that. Or maybe you're going through a difficult situation, and you say, God, if you get me through this, then I'll do this or that. And after God got you through that situation or he healed you, did you forget it? Did you forget your vow? Hannah didn't. She didn't forget it. Verse 12. As she kept on praying to the Lord, I want you to notice, Lord, it's capitalized there, L-O-R-D. That's Yahweh. It's different. Jehovah, Yahweh, what that means. Jehovah, Yahweh, every time you see that. And it's different where you're going to see Lord, where it's going to be referring to Eli. It's small letters. But Lord is Jehovah, Yahweh. So as she kept on praying to the Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. 
Eli thought she was drunk. And he said to her, how long will you keep on getting drunk? Get rid of your wine. By the way, this is a wonderful lesson for us to get the story before you draw conclusions, right? To get the story. Has anybody other than Eli and me got in trouble because we didn't get the story first? You hear the story and say, oh, now I understand, right? So she tells her story here is what she's doing. She tells her story. Verse 15. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I'm a woman who's deeply troubled. I've not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Verse 17. Eli answered, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. Verse 18. She said, May your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. You read that passage, you say, What's changed? She's still a woman that can't have a baby, right? So what's changed? Now in the midst of her trial, she went to God. And she was trusting in a sovereign God is what she was trusting in. In the midst of our trials, we have many options, but there's two options that most people take. The first option that many people, they, they run from God. And while they're running from God, they're blaming God the whole way. They're blaming God in the trial. Why did you let this happen to me? Why, after I've done so much for you, God, why would you do this to me? Why would you let this happen? And as they're running from God, they always get into more difficulty, right? Always get into more trouble as they're running from God. The second option is we run to God. Understanding that he will shape our trials according to his good purposes, right? We may never know the purposes, but we just have to trust him, what he's going through. Trust him in his sovereignty. So the word sovereignty, if you hear that, is a big, long word. It just means he's in control, that he's king, and he's Lord over all, is what it means. And we find that in the life of Jesus as well, the sovereignty of God. Where the Bible says in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, when it's referring to Jesus, talking about him, the sermon goes like this. This man, Jesus was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. The foreknowledge of God means more than God knowing ahead of time or God looking ahead. Foreknowledge is a determinative word. What it means, it means God planned this and God caused this. That's what foreknowledge means. God planned it and God caused it. You mean God caused the pain and affliction and even the crucifixion of Jesus? Yes, he did. God was the one that caused all that. It was his plan from the beginning. God caused that. Because God was shaping that trial for a greater purpose, in it, it, for his purpose, for a greater, uh, for greater, something greater in his purposes. So we always must run toward God is what we have to do. Run toward him. Uh, the Bible tells us in James chapter 1, verse 2 and 3, our memory verse for this week. It says, consider pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. I want to read verse 4 too. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. He says, consider it pure joy when we face trials. Why? Because God has something good planned for you. Doesn't mean the trial is good, but it means the lesson is invaluable. At the very least, we're going to draw closer to Jesus, right? So let's draw closer to him. That's what you want to do through our trials. Whatever trial you're going through, draw closer to Jesus, what we're supposed to do. The second proper response is before the answers come, choose to worship. In other words, before the trial ends and, and before the answer comes, choose to worship. Continue to worship God. Worship Him. Let's read verse 19 and 20. Early the next morning, they arose and worshiped before the Lord. And they went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah lay with, with Hannah, his wife. And the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. 
the Lord remember, it doesn't mean the Lord could forget. It doesn't mean, the word remember here just means the memory of God runs in concert with his promises. They're to remember Hannah, and he gave her a son, is what it means here. But they, they named him Samuel. The word Samuel has two different meanings. It means the name of God or heard by God. And both of those stories are true in the life of Samuel, as you would see here. But I'm so glad that the order is the way it is. Where it says here, they rose early in the morning, and they worshiped before the Lord. If, the, if that part of the verse had been, they'd worshiped uh, after God had given the child, you would say, oh, of course they would worship. God gave them a child, they're going to worship. But the Bible says they got up and worshiped before God gave them the child. In other words, they worshiped God in the midst of their storm. They didn't wait till I got the child, I'm going to worship. Before the child came, they worshiped him. When they understood the sovereign hand of God, they trusted him. Trusted him with their life. Trusted him with their situation. Trusted him with that circumstance. And God gave, right? He gave. Let's see what happens here in verses 21 through 28. When the man Elkanah went up with all his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord to fulfill his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, after the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord, and he will live there always. Do what seems best to you, Elkanah, her husband, told her. Stay here until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord make good his word. So the woman stayed at home and nursed her son until she had weaned him. After he was weaned, she took the boy with her young, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. Some suggest the child was probably, Samuel was probably about three years of age at that time. Verse 25. When they had slaughtered the bull, they brought the boy to Eli. And she said to him, As surely as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life he will be given to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. The first thing that I want you to notice in verses 21 through 28 is that God God in his grace, he gave. Remember that. God in his grace, he gave. And Hannah received. Hannah received the grace of God, and, and, and God gave her a son, right? That's what he gave her. He received. That was God's grace. The second thing that I want you to see is, is, is she kept her vow. And it's so important. She kept her vow. She was going to give her son back to God. Ladies, imagine that. You prayed for a son. You couldn't have a baby. You prayed for this son so much, and you wanted to have a child. And God gives you a child, but you made a promise. You made a promise. Now you've got to give it back to God. And God shapes our trials according to his good purposes, right? That's what he does. Had Hannah come to the realization that God had some, something bigger planned for her life than just a child, that this child that he was going to give her was going to be someone special, and God was going to use that child to, to bring salvation and redemption and, and forgiveness to a nation as a prophet and as a priest. As a prophet, he's going to preach the word of God. As a priest, he, was, he wasn't from the tribe of Levi. He was from the tribe of Ephraim. And yet God, would, he would do the work of a priest. He was being trained by the high priest, Eli. In 1 Samuel 13, he offered the sacrifice only priests could offer. But he also anointed two great kings. Who are they? The first two kings, Saul and David. So God did great work through him. Through, through Samuel. Also want you to notice that when Hannah came all those years, year after year, she had nothing to give to the Lord. She had nothing. She had nothing to give. And then she received. And when she received, what did she do? She gave back. Her offering was her son that she gave. And God gave, she gave him to the Lord for service. The wording there means forever. For his whole life, she would give him to the Lord for service. And God gives us his grace. 
so that you and I can be conduits of his grace to other people. I shared this metaphor with you a, a few weeks ago about the Jordan River, how fresh water flows and winds down from the, from the uh, Sea of Galilee through the Jordan River. And through that Jordan River provides life all around uh, for people to have, uh, for, for they, they uh, water their livestock so they can live, the livestock can live from the Jordan River. It provides uh, uh, irrigation and, and water for the, the farm fields all around there so they can eat. Provides also uh, fish are in there so they can eat the fish. Provides all, all kinds of fresh water and, and for all the wild game all around there. So that Jordan River, that fresh water just provides life all around. But that Jordan River flows from the Sea of Galilee all the way down to the lowest part of the earth called the Dead Sea. And all that water comes in. There's no outlet in the Dead Sea. So all that, all that water comes in. It's just a reservoir that just receives and receives and receives all those minerals, everything. So the Dead Sea has no outlet. So it's so thick with all those minerals that you can't sink in the Dead Sea. You just float. And nothing can live in the Dead Sea. Nothing. Nothing can live there. So we have a choice as we receive the grace of God in our life. We have a choice. Either we could be like a river providing life all around, or we could be like the Dead Sea, like a reservoir where just gaining more and more. I want more and more, and nothing goes out. Nothing goes out. Hannah didn't do that. Hannah gave it all. She was like a river. She gave it all, all that she had. And that's what God calls us, that we become conduits of his grace, and we'd be like a river. As God's grace comes to us, that we provide life all around. We give it out constantly to everyone, knowing God is going to give us more, right? Not that we got to hoard it. I may never get anything. God's promised to provide, and we can give it out freely. That's what he wants, just like Hannah's life, to do that. The third thing I want you to notice is 1 Samuel chapter 2 is really Hannah's praise to God for prayer. The third proper response, come to understand that God is great. God is great. 1 Samuel chapter 2 verse 1. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. Skip down to verse 10. Find verse 10. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder against them from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. She's not talking about a rival wife, Peninnah. She's not talking. She sees ahead to a nation of Israel, and all these other nations are in opposition to the God of Israel. And she says, the God who is raising up my son, this God, will lead these people to destroy his enemies. She sees it. She gets it. She gets what God is doing. She kind of sees ahead and understands that her son Samuel, who was a huge, huge blessing to her, her son Samuel was a huge blessing to the nation of Israel. She understood what God was doing with her son. She got it. It goes on in verse 11. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, but the boy ministered before the Lord under Eli the priest. Now, you, you can appreciate that. This lady gives her son to Eli, the high priest, he's for you to raise. And she would come back once a year to see her son at the annual feast. She'd come back to see him once a year. But she gave him from three, probably around three years old on to raise him for the Lord, that he would serve the Lord all his life. That good that God did to her was inferred to a nation, was inferred. And what we see, this clearly draws a beautiful picture of Jesus in Samuel's life. It's a beautiful picture of Jesus, that, that God saw a nation in trouble, so he gives them Samuel, this baby. God saw a world in trouble. What did he do? He sent his son as a baby. He sent Jesus, right? And did Jesus know what he was getting into? Hebrews tells us that, that who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. That Jesus knew what he was getting into. Even when he cries out to God the Father the night before he's crucified, 
He cries out and he says, Lord, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Who doesn't, who doesn't want to be out of the trial, right? Even Jesus did. But God did not take that trial from Jesus. But he shaped that trial that Jesus went through to provide salvation for every one of us who would believe. And he still does that today. He still does that today. Salvation for everyone who would believe. And my question is, if you haven't received Jesus Christ as your Savior yet, if you ever put your faith, to understand that, that God loves you and he wants to have a relationship with you, you need to give your heart and life to Jesus. You need to come and understand who he is, that he's the son of God, that he's God, and what he did, that he died on the cross for your sins. And now put your faith and trust in Jesus for forgiveness of sins, and then you have forgiveness of sins, eternal life with God, part of the family of God, and a hope in eternity with Jesus forever. But it all comes through faith in Jesus. If you've never done that, do that today. If you have questions about that, please see me after the service. But here's the challenge for all of us I want us to see in this passage. That God saw that a nation was in trouble. Picture that. A nation was in trouble. And he could have started the story in chapter 3 or chapter 4. And he could have said, here's a leader. Follow him. And I will deliver you. He could have done that, right? I mean, he could have done that. But instead, he starts the story with a woman who wanted to have a baby and couldn't. Think about that. That answers the question for all of us. Does God care about what we're going through? Yes, absolutely yes, he does. He does. This passage shows us that. He cared enough about this woman who wanted to have a baby and couldn't. So that changes our perspective, that we can trust in a sovereign God and know that he takes our trials, he will shape our trials according to his good purposes, right? And we don't even know we many times understand the purpose. We just have to trust him, right, that he's going to see me through this is what we're called. And sometimes God might reveal uh, what's going on in our lives, and we look at it and we say, wow, God, the purpose of why this happened in my life, and we're amazed only God could have done that. Other times we're not going to understand why that trial come, came in our life till we get into glory. And then we get into glory, we get into heaven, we look back, we will to see that God brought people, circumstances, and everything together. We're going to know it was God that did that. We're going to give him all the glory. So much so that even the Apostle Paul, when he saw that all that God had done, he tells us in Romans chapter 11, verse 34 through 36, I love this passage. He says, who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given to God that God should repay him? Think about that. Who has given to God that God should repay him? He doesn't owe us any of us anything. Verse 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Uh, God doesn't always answer our prayers the way we want him to answer, does he? We know that. But at times he does. And when he does, that tells us everything we need to know about God, his goodness. That he takes our trials and he, and he, and he kind of shapes them according to his good purposes. He always does that because he wants what's best for us. We may want him to do this. God says, no, I've got something better planned for you, and I'm going to shape them according to my good purposes because you're like a piece of puzzle there. I'm going to do it for mine. So let's trust him. We can trust him what he's going to do, right? We have to trust him through the trial. Hey, let's worship him in the midst of the trial, and let's follow our deliverer. Let's follow the one that will help us in our trial. We don't have to understand all the circumstances. We don't have to understand the trial, but we trust in a sovereign God, amen, knowing he understands the big picture. And he's shaping our trials according to his good purposes, not ours. Because he's in what's best for us, right? He knows what's going to glorify him. He knows what's best for you and mine. He knows the whole picture. You and I can only see what's in front of us. God knows what's best. So we have to trust in a sovereign God. Amen? Let's pray. Let me come and we praise you.
We praise you, God, because every one of us go through trials. Every one of us in this room has been through trials or in a trial. Our Lord, in the next week or so or a month, we, we're being some kind of trial. It's just the fact of life. And Lord, to know that you love us enough, that you care about us enough, that you know exactly what's going on in our hearts and our minds, that you know, even to the detail you know about this woman, Hannah, who wanted to have a baby and couldn't. You knew about her, and you answered her prayer. And you talk about that in Psalm 113, 113 Lord. You hear the cries of a, of a poor man. You hear the cries of a woman who couldn't have a baby. Lord, you hear that, and you, you care. So you care about our trials. You care about what's going on in our hearts and our minds. We should never doubt your care. We should never doubt your love. We should just trust in a sovereign God that you're always going to shape our trials according to your good purposes. We must believe that and understand that and always trust you. And never let the enemy or others cause us to ever doubt you. So, Lord, I pray for anybody that's going through a trial, maybe more than they can handle, might be life or death or anything like that, that, Lord, they just come to a sovereign God who's ruler over all, who's got all power, was able to create this universe with the power of his words and sustains it with the power of his words, that he can help us in our time of need. He can help us in our trials or whatever we're going through. That he has the power to change the circumstances, change things around us, the environment around us. God can do that. And we'd come and surrender to you, trusting in a sovereign God that he's going to shape our trial according to his good purposes. That God's got something good planned for us. Help us to learn the valuable lessons that we need in that trial. Help us to draw closer to Jesus, that whatever we're going through, that every trial would be a, 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 a circumstance, it would be a time that I can draw closer to you, that I learn from you, Jesus, that I become more like Jesus. That's what they're there for us, to increase our faith, to mature us, to make us more like Christ. And I pray that for each and every one of us, that, Lord, that we get away from the attitude of blaming God. That's where our emotion blaming God. Why did you allow this to happen? Why did you do this? To God, I will trust in a sovereign God that you've got a plan. You're going to shape it according to my good purpose. Lord, help us to understand that. Help us to understand, Lord, you love us. That you really do love us. And you want what's going to glorify you in our lives. And you know what's best for us. You created us. And so, Lord, help us to live according to your plan, according to your word. Help us not live what pragmatically we think that works in the world. Because the Bible tells us that uh, man does what's right in our man does what according to their hearts and it leads to destruction. But Lord, we do what according to the word of God. We follow righteousness, we follow your path. And so Lord, help us to be those kind of people. Lord, if we've messed up and we've sinned and we haven't lived that way, we confess it today. But today's a different day. We're gonna trust in a in a God who's sovereign, who's in control. And we're gonna do things his way and live that obedient life. Help us to live that. Help us through our trials that we trust you. Help through our trials to mature us, Lord, that we trust you in everything. We don't doubt you, but through them we worship you, we get into the word of God, and we draw closer to you, Jesus. Help us to run with outstretched arms wrapping around you and hold it on for dear life, because through those times we need you. And you may glorify yourself. Lord, through the next song that we sing, you give us 10,000 reasons for, for us to draw closer to you and cling to you. And there's so many more than that, but there's just 10,000 to start us off with. Lord, we praise you, we love you. And, we, and Lord, we know because you first loved us. Let us all sing with our hearts raised up. We have a God who loves us, loves us so much that he sent his one and only son to die. We worship you, and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let